Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Good morning, all. Welcome to church. Uh, And last week, while I was gone, we started a series, what will it be about, a 14-week series, when all said and done, through the book of Joshua. Uh, Pastor Jim opened it up last week, introducing us to the main human figure of the book of Joshua. And this week, we jump into the text. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them now to Joshua chapter 1. It is the first book of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, by the way, there's a table of contents in the front. It'll help you find the page number that Joshua begins on. The chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are little numbers. Uh, We are going to read the entire chapter of Joshua chapter 1 this morning and look at some things in it. Uh, Before we do, though, I want to say that I don't think we will understand Joshua uh, either this morning or throughout the series unless we understand the disruptive nature of the text of Joshua. Uh, Joshua is a book of warfare, a book of surprising renewal, a book of a rising next generation. And in each of those three ways, it is a book that challenges our modern sensibilities and runs contrary to the culture of our day and our particular moment. And because of that, I think Joshua might just be the exact book of the Bible we are supposed to be in now. You see, we, like the people of Joshua's day, live in a time of war. Our time of war, though, is spiritual. It is a time of disequilibrium. It's a time of cultural war as well. You may not have wanted it, you may not understand it, you may be confused by it, but whether you want it or not, it appears the culture war is always waiting around the corner for you. Whether it's uh, a trip to your local school board, whether it's an endorsement from your favorite professional sports team or consumer product, or whether simply holding a ballot in your hand seeking to exercise faithfully your democratic privilege to vote. As you reflect on the issues that the culture war brings, such issues require wisdom. Wisdom to know whether or not to engage, if to engage, how to engage. And when we, how do we engage even when we, Christians, come to differing opinions about issues? Likewise, we live in the aftermath of a time of testing. What we'll see in Joshua chapter 1 is a people emerging from a time of testing and refinement in the wilderness outside of Canaan. We too have emerged from a time of wilderness. We're trying to figure out what it looks like to be a social culture again, to interact with each other again, to go to school, to go to work, to come to church in the aftermath of a global pandemic. To a certain extent, this is why we spent a large chunk of last year considering Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. We wanted to hear from him what it meant to live faithfully as a citizen of his kingdom rather than making presumptions on our own. We understand as well that renewal, spiritual renewal, often can be controversial because it requires us to rethink our methodologies. It often requires us to retrieve something that was lost, forgotten, or taken for granted. One commentator says it this way, The book of Joshua suggests that a reflection on the past to understand the present in order to illuminate the future is fundamental to Israel's communal life, and the same continues to be true for the church. We need to look at the past to understand right now so that we know where we're headed. 
And that's one of the things that we will see happening and we will be required to do as we look at the book of Joshua. Connected to that is the concept of the rising next generation. If you were with us prior to Easter, you know that we sent out a survey in order to hear some feedback about how we are doing in leading a healthy church. And one thing that stood out to me in that survey, uh, in the 96 responses that came back, they almost equally divided between the boomer generation, the extra generation, and the millennial generation with a cohort of Gen Zs in there as well. I think that's fascinating because what that tells us is that we have the four major generations in our culture all operating within our church, and we need to think about how we grow as individual disciples and make future disciples in each generation. Studies are showing that across the world and across American culture, generations are beginning to look more and more like each other in terms of others in their generation, rather than more and more like other people uh, in their particular geographic proximity. Meaning, a millennial in Arizona looks more like a millennial in California, New York, London, Paris, than they do like other Arizonans of different generations. We need to think about what this means and how we pass the baton from one generation to the next. And Joshua points us to that because, and I don't want to give spoilers, but the book following Joshua is the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 2, verses 8 and ten, eight through 10, it says this. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110 years old. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timonath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, in the north of the mountains of Gaish. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Here's my point. We must keep in mind that the successful baton pass of Moses to Joshua of one generation to the next is fumbled in the coming generation. We cannot rest on our laurels. We must think about each successive generation, or else we too will end up, as Judges 2.11 says, and the people of the Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, false gods, idols. They had no king, they had no leader, and they did not know the Lord. We will see how striking this is as we study the book of Joshua together. But one thing that we can note this morning is that Joshua chapter 1 will give us multiple clear references to the fact that the people had God's word with them. You can tell I've had a week off. I'm already trying to get into my sermon. I'm still in the introduction, so let me just put a bow on this and we'll... (laughs) All, All things in their time, right? Here's the bow. Possession of God's word means little if you do not have intentional, thoughtful engagement with it. Possession of God's word will mean nothing, even if we have it, if we thumb through it, if we hold it in high regard, but it will mean nothing for you spiritually, for your family, or for us as a church community if we do not actually read it, hear it, submit to it, and live by it. And that is because when you read the Bible faithfully and thoughtfully, you hear, submit to, and live by the God who inspired every word of it. But again, I'm not supposed to be preaching, so let me add one other theme of the book of Joshua that's relevant for us this morning, and then we will read, pray, and dive into the sermon. The book of Joshua is a book of division. 
This book highlights the dividing line between the people of God and the people of the world. And we too live in a time of division. There's a, scripture speaks regularly about the division that stays between us and the people of the world. It talks about sheep and goats being in and out of the kingdom of God, Jew and Gentile, church and world. So there is a very real division, and we need to be honest about what divides us from, what, uh, from the people of the world. I think depending on how you heard that, it's important to address this. Some of you may think that that sounds kind of divisive, kind of combative, maybe a bit narrow. Why can't we all be one? Well, we live in a world where we divide up people. You cannot not divide up people. Philosophies of our world, critical race theory, divides people up by race. Marxism or cultural Marxism divides people up by wealth or power. Sexism by biological sex. Nationalism by culture or language. Many of these are immutable characteristics, things you did not choose and you cannot change. But as we look at the book of Joshua, and particularly Joshua 1 this morning, we will see that Christianity divides people not by who they are, but by who they follow. We will see that the divisions of the world are natural and immutable. But the division of Christianity is spiritual, and it is always inclusive. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's read our passage, pray, and jump in. And I just want to make one comment about how this is going to work. Often in sermons, I will regularly uh, reread portions of the text. Because our text is long, uh, I'm going to make reference to them. The words will pop up on the screen. You have the entire text printed in your bulletin. Uh, but I am just going to make reference to them depending upon time. So just so you know, they may go by rather quick. So listening ears on, let's go. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, or Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel, to every place that, your, that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, going down uh, to the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, either to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate uh, you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosper, and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, 
you are to pass over the Jordan to go to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing for you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do. Wherever you send us we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things. So we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you. As he was with Moses, whoever rebels against your command and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Here's what I want us to look at in here. The people of God have the strength and courage to cling to God's word. And they have strength and courage only through clinging to God's word. The people of God follow Yeshua. And the people of God assent to wholehearted obedience. We're going to see that those are the three things that separate the people of God from the people of this world. But let's pray, and we will dive into uh, the sermon. Father in heaven, we give you this morning. We have expressed our gratitude to you in song. We have come to you in prayer and in reading your word. And now we ask you to bless the preaching of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be honoring in, in your sight this morning. We ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the people of God have strength and courage through clinging to God's word. Uh, it's hard to read Joshua chapter 1 and not notice the repetition of the phrase, be strong and courageous. We see it twice in verses 6 and 7, repeated again in verse 9, and then restated at the end of the chapter in verse 18. Interestingly enough, though, this is not the first time this command appears, and especially appears in the context of Joshua's ministry. In Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 7, Moses, speaking to the congregation as a whole, and then to Joshua as an individual, says this, Be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go up with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to give to their fathers, to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. Later in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 31, verse 23 the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. We have seven instances, then, of this command being given in the presence of Joshua or to Joshua. And so let's know what this command means. It's a two-part command. What does it mean to be strong? What does it mean to be courageous? Well, we should notice how strength and courage in each instance it appears are attached to God's word. We see that God has sworn, commanded, promised. These are things that God spoke to people. 
It says with Joshua, when he's commissioned, it says that God spoke to him. That wasn't through Moses. It's God speaking. Not only that, we see in Joshua chapter 1 that they have the written word of God. The clear implication then is that strength and courage, the strength and courage at least that God cares about and commands us to have, concerns obedience to his word and trust in his promises. As I noted, this is a book of warfare, which means the strength and courage is strength and courage for a battle. And if the battle depends upon strength and courage of its soldiers, we need to note that it is not the strength and courage of good tactics, superior weaponry, or better training. It is the strength and courage of good theology and meaningful spirituality. That is, it's the strength and courage of right belief about God and a meaningful relationship and connection with him. And this is fundamental to a faithful life. We see this throughout scripture. For example, if you think about Psalm chapter 1, the book of Psalms is a theologically arranged and divinely inspired book of Psalms. And it's arranged intentionally. Here's what Psalm 1, 1 through 2 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Remarkably similar to the command given to Joshua. And it's an excellent verse, an excellent psalm, uh, for those who would be pietistic, unconcerned with the world, and would, would desire to spend their life on a spiritual formation retreat, alone in a tent on a mountain, meeting with God. But Psalm 2 follows immediately after Psalm 1, and it does so intentionally. It does so to put them in pairing together. And here is what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let's get down to the end of the psalm. Therefore, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. In God's inspiration and provision for his people, he gives a songbook that begins with the manner of life of a faithful follower of God and pairs it with the reality of living in a fallen and broken and rebellious world. To be strong and courageous, therefore, is not to be an aggressive culture warrior, but to be a Psalm 1 follower of Jesus. To meditate day and night on his words, seeking his will for your life rather than yours or anyone else's will. But strength and courage is not found in mere withdrawal or unawareness of the world. Rather, we may not be culture warriors, but we certainly have to be public theologians. Because strength and courage in Joshua 1 is far more biblical than it ever is tactical. Second, we can consider the relationship of each character in Joshua chapter 1 to God and his word. Joshua 1 has three characters. You have God, you have Joshua, and you have the conglomerate character of the people of Israel. Notice that God speaks to Joshua, Joshua speaks God's word to the people, and the people speak the word back to Joshua. And did you catch in, in reading it that in Joshua 1.18, the people of Israel give Joshua a command? Joshua is their captain, yet they issue him an order. This is how the people of God maintain strength and courage in a fallen and rebellious world. 
we speak God's word to each other. Because the command they give is not something they thought up. As I said, it has already been given to Joshua six previous times. Let me make this practical. Why do we strive to teach at Journey Church robust biblical and theological sermons? Why do we strive at Journey Church to have robust theologically informed worship, sung music? Why do we do that? Because we believe we will not create a community of robust strength and courage that is needed for the disequilibrium you will face out in the world by singing simplistic prom songs to Jesus Christ, nor by hearing just mere opinion from me. You can get that when you turn on the radio. When you come here, we are trying to create something different. We are trying to create a community of the requisite strength and courage to face a rebellious world. And I need that as much as you do. To be strong and courageous is to be rooted in God's word. And to create a robust community of that sort of strength and courage, it is necessary for us to speak God's word to each other. So the people of God have the strength and courage individually to infuse their entire lives with God's word. And corporately to cultivate a habit of preaching God's word to one another. It makes sense then that in being rooted in God's word, spoken and written, we would be the followers of God's word who speaks and who was written about, which is to say that the true people of God follow the true and greater Joshua, follow the true and greater Yeshua. Pastor Jim, as he opened up the series last week, mentioned how Joshua is an English transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, and Yeshua in Greek would be Isu, which is where we get the name Jesus. Jesus and Joshua are therefore the same name in different languages. Biblically speaking, this is no coincidence. By God's providence and inspiration, Joshua is a type of Jesus Christ, meaning he is a character who is supposed to embody and foreshadow Jesus' coming. He is supposed to reveal aspects of Jesus' character, nature, ministry, and life to us. So what are the things that Joshua reveals to us about who Jesus is? Well, Joshua is a unique figure in biblical literature in that he is portrayed as, both, as all three, a prophet, priest, and a king. This is very, very rare. And it's surprising because nowhere is he explicitly referred to by any of those offices. But if we think about the basic notions of prophet, priest, and king and look at a few texts, we'll see how Joshua embodies each of these. A prophet hears the word of God and speaks it to the people of God. A priest comes from the presence of God, goes to the people of God, and seeks to bring them back to the presence of God, or to mediate the presence of God to them. This often entails in the Old Testament the need to purify or to make atoning sacrifice for sinful people. And the king leads the people of God in the life and the direction which God would have them go. Like I said, each of these notions is applied to Joshua. Consider the role of prophet— in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses tells the people that God will raise up after he is dead a prophet like himself to lead them. So Moses says, coming after me, there's a prophet like me who will lead you into the promised land. And what we see when we read the, uh, when the, we read the chapter of Joshua chapter 1 are multiple references to how Joshua's relationship between him and God, excuse me, and between him and the people mirrors or mimics the relationship Moses had with God and Moses had with the people. 
Joshua is a prophet like Moses. He hears from God, and he speaks to the people on behalf of God. In fact, if we zoom out, that is the entire structure of Joshua 1, uh, 1 through 15. That God speaks to Joshua, Joshua hears the word, and then he goes to the people and commands them to prepare for what God has told them to do. What about the priest and king role? In Joshua 1, 12 through 15, Joshua is told that he will help the people inherit the land, possess the land. This is uh, a subtle reference to shepherding imagery that we see when the land is twice associated with rest. That the land will be a place of shalom, of peace, where God's people find rest from the wilderness, find rest from slavery to Egypt, and find rest from warfare. It's a place of safety and flourishing. And so there's a subtle reference here to shepherds. Though it's subtle, we can see it more explicitly in Numbers 26, 16 through 18. Let the Lord your God, uh, this is Moses speaking, by the way, let the Lord your God, or the God of spirits and all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them, the congregation, and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. The language of shepherding throughout the Old Testament is priest-king language. Shepherds lead, lead their sheep, their flock, as kings lead the people. Lead them to places of rest and peace. Likewise, priests care for their flock, feeding them, nourishing them, tending to them, as priests are to care for their people. When God wants to criticize the leaders, spiritual and political, of Israel, the language he grabs to criticize them is of shepherds who did not care for their sheep. We could draw this easily into the New Testament, referencing how pastors, the analog to priests in the Old Testament, pastor is simply from the Latin cognate for the word shepherd. What about the kingly language, the kingly imagery? It goes more robust and deeper when we consider God's instruction to Joshua. In Joshua 1.7, he admonishes Joshua to always have the word of God in his mind, heart, and on his mouth. And that's not just good advice for a young Hebrew leader. That is actually an echo of what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 17 about what the king of Israel must do. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. When he, the king, sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. David, too, King David, picks up on this theme in Psalm 1, which we already looked at. But also, interestingly enough, when King David is about to pass the throne from himself to his son Solomon, here is what he says in 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself to be a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. 
Walk in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commands, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he has spoken concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me in faithfulness in all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." Notice the phrase, show yourself to be a man in that passage. That's actually a Hebrew idiom, and that Hebrew idiom means this, be courageous. So you have in close proximity the command to be courageous and be strong, which makes me think that David, when reflecting on passing the throne on, when reflecting on what a good king is, he is meditating on Joshua chapter 1. And his understanding of a good biblical leader is decidedly Joshua-shaped. Pastor Jim said last week that Joshua does not walk on water. And that is true. Here's my point. Joshua is portrayed as a faithful prophet, priest, and king. And though he does not walk on water, he will walk on dry land where raging waters had just been because the power of God stopped them. Why is that important? Because the author of the book of Joshua is trying to lay down as many clues as possible so that we pick up that Joshua is the true and rightful heir of Moses. But the divine author of the text of Joshua chapter 1 is trying to lay down as many clues as we, he can that we can pick up that Joshua is pointing us towards someone else who would come. Is pointing us to a greater Yeshua. Because though Joshua is a unique figure as a prophet, priest, and king of Israel, he is not the only one. Jesus of Nazareth, a humble carpenter, but God incarnate, exceeds Joshua in each and every one of these categories. As we study the book of Joshua, we will see that there are times when the words of Joshua's mouth are not the words of God. Yet, in John 12, 49 through 50, Jesus, speaking of himself, said this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is claiming that each and every word of his mouth comes not first and foremost from him, but from his Father above, from God. Jesus is the true and greater prophet. Likewise, Jesus exceeds Joshua in the role of priest. Joshua brings the people of God into a promised land which they must possess by the shedding of blood. But Jesus, in healing, in the casting out of demons, in the issuing of forgiveness, and most fundamentally in the sacrifice and shedding of his own blood, promises us a greater promised land. Canaan will have nothing on the kingdom of heaven. But like I said, that is not achieved by the sword but rather it was achieved by three nails driven through his hands and feet and a spear thrust through his side. Jesus does not slay his enemies at this time. Rather, he calls them to him. 
And Jesus succeeds Joshua in the role of king when he affirms before Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. See, he is separating himself from Joshua, acknowledging that he is the greater king of Israel. His people did not fight as Joshua's people need to fight because his way of bringing them into the land is different. My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Listening to the voice of command is a kingly position. Is an authoritative position. And we need to keep in mind that when Joshua dies, the people stumble. And this, in fact, is true of every leader. When you lose a leader, the people stumble. Which is why, friends, we need a leader that cannot die. We need a leader who promises to be with us no matter what we face, even to the ends of the earth. We need a leader who's willing to walk up right to the gates of hell in order to snatch us from the fiery furnace. In many ways, I think the point of Joshua 1 is to signal that a true, the true leader of God's people is always God himself. And every human leader that stands in front of God's people is only a good leader insofar as they follow and lead others in following the true and greater Yeshua the true and greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. One commentator speaking about leadership in the book of Joshua wrote this, Leadership is thus not about accumulating authority, but about faithfully doing what God calls one to do. As with Moses, Joshua shared the work with others because leadership is not about aggregating tasks to oneself so that people are dependent upon a particular leader, but rather recognizing the proper giftedness of each person so that they all contribute to the work that God has set out. Here's what I think about this. The only way not to lose your stability when you lose your leader, if in following them you are truly and fundamentally following Jesus Christ. Here's what I think this means for us. As we reflect on those four dynamics I spoke about at the beginning of the sermon, navigating the disequilibrium of our time, pursuing spiritual renewal, passing the baton to the next generation, and understanding how God divides the world, each and every one of those can only be done if we are in proper submission and obedience to Jesus. We must assent to wholehearted obedience, as the Israelites did, clinging to God's word and to his promise. Joshua 1.16, and they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Unless those are the words of our mouth, the desires of our heart, in front of Jesus Christ. We cannot understand this world. We cannot be stable in the midst of the disequilibrium. We will not be spiritually renewed. But what does this look like? I already told you, I think David in Psalm 1 and maybe and in 2 Kings uh, 2.1 is reflecting on Joshua 1. Well, I think there's another biblical author who is reflecting on Joshua 1. I think that's Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.13-14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You see that act like men again? In close proximity to the be strong, 
recalls the strong and courageous exhortation of Joshua 1. Now, in previous ministries, I have preached multiple sermons on just these two verses, so I'm going to try and keep this brief as we're landing the plane. One sermon is enough for a morning, right? If we are to look out for the opportunities to exercise faith and obedience, which I think is what Paul means when he says to be watchful, and if we are as well to be watchful for where we will be tempted and where we will fall, or if we are to be steadfast, standing firm in the faith, meaning planting our feet firmly on God's word, on the teachings of the apostles, thinking rightly about who God is, who we are, and what the world is like, or if we are to show the requisite maturity, strength, and courage for this time, this age, this cultural moment, or if we are simply to approach others, trying to show them love as Christ would love them and would have us love them in turn. It strikes me that you cannot do any of those things whilst also being apathetic about the things of faith. I was asked right before I went on vacation to name a few books or thoughts or ideas that are sort of shaping culture for us to think about. And I spent on my vacation quite a bit of time thinking about this, and I was reflecting on what I believe to be the basic worldview of most evangelicals today, which I can sum up in one word. Meh. Or maybe a hashtag. LOL. Nothing matters. We may have much intellectual assent today, but it appears we have little passion. We are a passio, a pathetic, without passions when it comes to the things of the Lord. Our worldview is that of apathyism. We simply do not care. Here's my fear. If we were to consider, for example, uh, one of the four cultural trends, since we don't have enough time for all four of them, but one of the four cultural trends I mentioned, there is much talk of revival Renewal and awakening today. I'm not always sure what those words mean when people speak about them, but here's the biblical definition of a revival, renewal, or awakening. A revival, spiritual renewal, or or awakening is when the Holy Spirit intensifies the normal disciplines of the Christian faith. Reading your Bible, prayer, fasting, gathering together, singing to the Lord, the normal disciplines of the Christian faith. So that active Christians, those taking their discipleship seriously, active Christians experience unprecedented in their life spiritual growth. So that sleepy Christians awake to the necessary zeal and importance of the life of Jesus Christ. And so that a surprising number of non-Christians hear and understand the gospel for the first time. My fear is that there is no room for apathy in that. And if we are an apathetic people, we will not find spiritual renewal. One interesting tidbit, by the way, about the study of revivals and renewals is their definition, at least the one that I delineated before, it is always preceded by times of fervent Bible study and intergenerational prayer. Often it is prayer led by an older generation, feeling as though they've lived in a spiritual wilderness and longing 
to see renewal, even if not in their generation, potentially in the next, or the one after that. An older generation that is so concerned with the things of God that they are willing to let the spiritual fruit of their labor be inherited by others. I don't really care how old you are. I think we need to collectively ask the question, are we willing to be strong and courageous so that others might experience the spiritual fruit of renewal? Are we willing to be strong and courageous so that others might stand stably in times of disequilibrium? Are we willing to be strong and courageous so that the next generation might rise? Let's go to God and pray. Asking him for the wisdom that we need for this day. Asking him for the strength and courage to cling to his word and to be inspired by his word. And asking him to fill our hearts with the true and greater Joshua. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word written that we may know you and hear from you. But we thank you most importantly for your word incarnate. The true and greater Joshua. Who in his life sinless. His death in our place. And his resurrection into glory. That we might be brought into the people of God. That we might not be separated because your concerns are not first and foremost for the color of skin, for the economic standpoint, for the amount of power, but your concerns are for what we do with your son. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom to know how to live in this present age. We ask for strength and courage to walk humbly before you. And we ask that as we go to pass the baton on to ne the next generation, regardless of what generation we ourselves are in, that in doing so, many might be able to proclaim, as we will momentarily, that our salvation comes from God, comes from Jesus Christ, and that in him we might bear much fruit. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.